I do not consider myself to be a religious person. Now, some of you would consider me a religious person, right? Why? Why would you, you, you consider me a religious person because I'm a? That's how you know me? That's the role I play, so I am a religious person because I am a pastor. I do pastoral things, I do religious things, I read my Bible, I pray, I help people, I go to church. And some people may say I'm religious about golf. And what they mean by that is, I'm committed to it, I work at it, I'm passionate about it. But the definition, the dictionary definition, it's in your bulletin, I think it's on the back side, this is a dictionary definition of religion, is this. The beliefs, attitudes, emotions, and behaviors constituting a person's relationship with the powers and principles of the universe, especially with the deity or deities. And the practical results of such a belief are expressed in worship, ritual, a particular view of the world and of the nature and destiny of humanity. Based on that definition, everyone is religious. For the person who has nothing to do with God and thinks that God is irrelevant and is far away and has nothing to do with creation, that is their religion. And because of their view of God, they live a certain way. If you view that God doesn't matter in your life, then you live a certain way. And a person's behavior is dictated by their beliefs. And I often run into people who, when they find out I'm a pastor, say, well, you don't look like a pastor. And I say, well, what does that mean? And they say, well, you look like me. And so I push them on that a little bit. And what I find out is that they don't feel religious. And I look like them. And somehow they think that religious people look different. And so then I tell them, you know what? I'm not passionate about religion. I'm passionate about Jesus. And Jesus is everything to me. And because of my relationship with Jesus, I live in a certain way. I live a life of grace, I hope, of mercy, of forgiveness and love. And my whole life is a response to my relationship with Jesus. If you want to call that religion, fine. But I don't want to be considered a religious person. I want to be considered a person who loves Jesus. And the promise I want you all to remember today is from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You go back to verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Amen. Today we're continuing on our sermon series on the book of Acts, and we're at Acts chapter 17, and this is the story of Paul going to Athens. 
How many of you have been to Athens? Okay, a couple of you. It is a, an impressive city 2,000 years after its heyday. But when Paul was there, it would have been even a much more spectacular city. So we're going to start reading Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says here, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set forth and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made with man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to Repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And that Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. So as we look at this passage of Scripture today, I want us to consider how we are to think in our world, where we are surrounded by philosophies and worldviews that keep people from Jesus. And keep people from understanding the good news of salvation in Jesus. 
the greatest form of evangelism for us today is not for us to be more religious. Rather, it is to be more authentic as followers of Jesus Christ. And if our religious behavior doesn't lead people to Jesus, where is it leading them? So let's understand the context of this passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul has been going around the countryside and talking about Jesus, and he is being persecuted, and so he goes from one city to another city to another. And finally, he's in Athens. And so he's waiting there for his other missionaries to join him. And he is moved by being in the city of Athens, looking around, seeing all the idols. And he is distressed. And so he goes around and he talks in the marketplaces, just in the common places. He'd go to the synagogue where it was something he knew. And he's greatly distressed. These are religious people. But they are not worshiping the one true God. And so Luke records for us this sermon that Paul gives in Acts chapter 17. What happens is he's in the marketplace in this group of uh, philosophers, the two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. They come up to him and they start asking him what he's talking about. And so let me describe their, the audience a little bit. The Epicureans. The Epicureans followed the teaching of a Greek philosopher, Epicurus, who, was, who lived from 342 B.C. to 270 B.C. They were empiricists. They relied on sense experience for knowledge. And this put them in opposition with those who chose to make statements about the world based on reason alone. And the Epicureans judged that the value of an action or a thing was in terms of pleasure or pain. You avoid pain, you go for pleasure. If things are good, they feel good, taste good, smell good. If it's pleasurable, then do it. Because this world is all there is. And so we would call them hedonists. Or something like that. The Epicureans also, or Epicurus, considered the gods to be so remote that they took no interest in and had no influence on human affairs. And Epicurus argued that people were made up of atoms, and when the atoms separate and a person when the atoms separate, a person ceases to exist. There is nothing immortal but a person. Therefore, after death, there is nothing. So live life to the max now. Have as much pleasure as you can, because this is all there is. Now you have that group, and now you have the Stoics. This was a widespread Greek and Roman philosophy by the time of Paul, and the scope and power of this philosophy is indicated by the fact that the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius in AD 180 was a Stoic himself. And they had a cyclical view of cosmic history such that one universe after another arises and then is destroyed. And both the orderliness of things as we know them and the cyclical pattern of history were ascribed to an organizing principle and sustaining power of a pervasive force in the universe called the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. From Logos is a Greek word which we get the word. So the Logos is this principle. It gives to all things their essential nature and so gives life and reason to humanity. 
In fact, the Logos is in humanity, taking the form of a human soul. And hence, to live according to reason is to live according to the natural order of things. And this is good. The good life, then, is one that is lived according to reason, not according to passions. So, to oversimplify this, Epicureans emphasize chance, escape, and the enjoyment of pleasure, and the Stoics emphasize fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. So this is Paul's basic audience. And these guys are part of what is called the Areopagus. And that is a, um, a group of people that had jurisdiction over matters of education and social life and religion. And so it's to this audience that Paul introduces a creator, a creator God, and the dignity of human life as being this creator's offspring, and the certainty that there is a judgment coming and there's a call to repentance to return to this creator God. Now, just a little disclaimer here. I am not trying to endorse that you do what Paul did. Because many of you, are, most of us, are ill-equipped to have these philosophical debates with philosophers of our day. But there is a place for apologists in our world today and for intellectuals. And there is an urgent need for more Christian thinkers who will dedicate their minds to Christ to be lecturers, to be authors, to be journalists, producers, and artists. All these can do battle with contemporary and non-Christian philosophies and ideologies in a way that gives them an audience with people who would otherwise discredit the Christian faith. Christ calls us to be humble, but he never called us to not be intellectual. And so, next week, you all have the privilege of having Dr. Steve Sherman here. He is a professor at Grand Canyon University. He's going to, we've been talking, because it's men's retreat next week, and Steve's going to be here. And this is one of his favorite passages of Scripture. And so he's going to be speaking on it. Um, and I'm excited. Steve, so thankful that you are going to be here. And I am looking forward to listening to your sermon, even though I'm going to miss it next week, listening to it. But God has gifted certain people who can enter into this type of world. So I'm not asking you to go into the universities and debate with people, but pray for people like Steve who do this. Well, Paul's sermon is, Paul goes to this Areopagus, he's invited by the people, and he speaks to them. And basically his little mini sermon is anchored firmly in the biblical tradition of presenting God as a creator of all things. God is not part of creation. God is the creator of all things and is therefore the universal sovereign of heaven and earth. And in this respect, what Paul is saying resonates equally well with an ingrained tradition of Greek philosophical thought. Basically, there's two conclusions here that Paul comes up with. One, humanly constructed shrines or temples are inadequate to house this cosmic creator. Okay, I'm going to say something that some people might not like. Churches are not the houses of God. Churches are the houses of the people of God. God does not live in this. 
God created the entire universe to think that we can contain God in a house is foolish. So Paul says, humanly constructed shrines are inadequate to house this cosmic creator. And second, sacrifices served up by human hands with their attendant altars and images are inappropriate for a self-sufficient God. God doesn't need us. And he doesn't need our sacrifices. But Paul goes on and says, the more important point is that human beings were created in order to seek God. God created us to be in a relationship with him. And God wants us to seek him. And that human beings are inseparably related to their creator. And so what Paul does then, he uses Greek um, poets. To, he uses the language that these people would have understood. He uses Greek poets to say, we are God's offspring. That's not a quotation from the Bible. He uses poets, so they're like, oh yeah, that's what our own people say. And then Paul leads them, and he gets up to the point of saying, now here, you have an altar to an unknown God. Now, this wasn't, some people have the idea that the Greeks wanted to just make sure that they didn't leave anyone out, when in fact, the unknown God is the highest, the ultimate God, because it's the one God that we can't understand. It is beyond our comprehension. And so they have an altar to the unknown God, but because the God is unknown, you don't know how to worship. And Paul says to them, the God that you say is unknown, I'm going to reveal to you. I'm going to reveal to you. And God has come and become part of his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, the Areopagus is a place of judgment. So the people would all get together and they would make judgments on religion and education and life. And so Paul knows that and so he portrays Jesus as the judge of the world. Something they would totally understand. And so Paul comes and says to them, I'm going to present to you a God who you think is unknown, but now is known to you. You can have a personal relationship with this God. This God loves you and wants to be in a relationship with you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to be the judge and savior of the world. And Paul proclaims to them, hey, your religious practices are not based on knowledge, but they were based on ignorance. But now that Jesus has been revealed, you don't have to worship in ignorance anymore. You can know God, you can know what God wants, you can know his will. And so there's four things to keep and to learn from Paul in Athens, and this was on the back of your bulletin. It's K-U-L-P, culp. It doesn't really, it doesn't pronounce real well, but the first is, Whenever you're going to go talk to someone, know your audience. Know your audience. Paul knew who he was talking about. He knew who the Epicureans were. He knew who the Stoics were. So you need to know your audience if you're going to know what to say to them. Know your audience. So that's the K. U is use their language. Understand your audience, but then use their language. 
Paul, it would have been futile for Paul to quote the prophets from the Old Testament because they wouldn't have got that. They wouldn't have understood it. So what does he do? He uses Greek poets to make his point. So know your audience, use their language. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about knowing the music of our world, knowing the songs that are important to people in order to gain a hearing with people. So Paul does that. And then Paul lives grace. If he's going to say that you can have a personal relationship with this God, but it's not about earning anything, it's about receiving from God, you have to live grace. So it's not just what you say, but you have to live grace and mercy and forgiveness. And then the last thing is, P, present Jesus. Present Jesus and then get out of the way. Because the power of the gospel is in Jesus. The power of the gospel is in not how you present it. Present Jesus and get out of the way. Because usually after we present Jesus, we mess it up. And the great news I want us to focus on in this passage is that God has decided to reveal himself to his creation. There's always this little image of people climbing to the top of a mountain to reach a divine being and they get up to the top of a mountain and there's some guru there sitting cross-legged and you know you get to ask a question well what if we didn't have to go to the top of the mountain because God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ and he did it because he loves you he did it because he loves you Now, I've heard a lot of people say, well, that person's more religious than me. And sometimes I don't even know what that means. But it's not the amount of faith you have. It's the object of your faith that matters. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It matters about the object of your faith. And the smallest amount of faith in Jesus Christ is better than all the faith in the world in something else. Let me close with this. The Stoics had this idea of this unifying principle for the world, for the universe. And it was called the logos. That's the Greek word for word, thought or idea. The logos or the word, gives to all things essential, their essential nature and gives life and reason to humanity. So think about what the Stoics would hear when they read John chapter 1, which says this. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. If I was reading that in Greek, it would be in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life, and that life is the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Then you go down to verse 14. And the Word, or the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And to everyone who puts their faith in him, he gives the right to become children of God. And God wants you 
to know him. He wants to be in a personal relationship with you. And it's all through his son, Jesus Christ. 